1999, a pastor went into Cambodia, into the Kampong Tom province in northern Cambodia, to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of the people in Cambodia, throughout that very isolated area especially, had cast their lots with Buddhism or Spiritism, and Christianity was virtually unheard of. But he went into one small village, and to his surprise, he was actually greeted with affection. He was greeted well. His message was received. And after he had spoken with them for a while, he asked them why they had received this message of Jesus better and and more freer than anyone else that he had preached to in that area. And one woman said, we have been waiting for you for 20 years. Waiting for you for 20 years. And then they proceeded to tell the story in 1979 when the Khmer Rouge, the brutal totalitarian communist regime that killed many people and overtook Cambodia, during that time, as, it, as the, the armies marched toward their village, in 1979, the armies reached this particular village. And what the army did was had everyone dig their own grave and stand next to it. And they knew as they dug their graves that this army just intended to kill them. And there was weeping and moaning and calling out to animalistic gods and and Buddha and calling out to all of this. But then out of one, next to one of the graves, one old woman, remembering a story that her mother had told her when she was a child, started crying out to the God who hung on a cross. And she began praying louder and louder and people were listening. And so all the mourning and all the weeping, the the only one still praying words was this woman who was crying out to the God that she had heard about when she was a child, the God who hung on a cross. And all the weeping and the mourning started to settle down because nothing was happening. And all, all of a sudden, the brave soul among them turned around and the soldiers were all gone. No one was killed. They just filled in the graves and went about their life. So this woman said, we've been waiting for someone to come and tell us the story about the God who hung on a cross for 20 years. Now that's an amazing story, is it not? That just the calling out to a God who would hang on the cross, think of that, a God who would hang on a cross, who would die was enough to, to, to cause the soldiers to retreat and all of the people to wait for the rest of the story. The fact that Jesus died on a cross was according to the Old Testament. The fact that he gave his life for many was according to the Old Testament. But a fact it is nonetheless. He needed to come, live the perfect life, and die in our place, like we learned about last week. But that dying was costly. Because as we also learned about next last week, he was the one who did not deserve it. And this week we will see even more that he is the one who did not deserve it. So we think often of the Jesus that we preach to people, that he died and he rose again on the third day and he's coming again? And how often is it that we just press right over the he would die part because it, it's kind of unpalatable to some people? It, it's, it's kind of unpalatable when they hear that, this, that the God who is the God of the universe would send his son to die. It's caused many lost people, including liberal theologians, to come up with all kinds of other theories about what might have happened there, and if he actually died, or did he just swoon, and was he just our example, and, and that really is just a tale about him, so we would know that we live sacrificially, all those kinds of things. And if he did actually die, then that's not the God that we need to believe in. That's the cruel God of the Old Testament, because it's cosmic child abuse to have to put your son on the cross because other people have sinned. And yet Isaiah has us focusing in in the fourth serving song on what? 
the suffering of the servant. So one of the reasons I wanted to take five weeks to go through this instead of just two or three or one was so that we felt the weight of this suffering servant. Remember, we started in, verse, in the last three verses of chapter 52. In verse 13, we started with the exaltation. Remember, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And when we get to the last three verses, we will see the rewards of this and the exaltation again. But in the second and the third and the fourth stanza of this song, this servant song, the suffering servant, what we are shown is the actual suffering and what people thought about it. Well, today, what I want us to be able to contemplate, we're going to hear some of the same themes, but we're also going to be introduced more fully to the idea that the just dies for the unjust, that the one who deserved no punishment received the ultimate punishment. And I want that thought this morning to rush over us, especially as we look at how the New Testament takes these ideas and motivates us toward godly living. These very same ideas of a suffering servant. Because we are the people who, we want justice for everyone else and mercy for ourselves, aren't we? And yet the Bible calls us to a different life. And I want that to hit us and wash over us today. Where in our life are we living like the ungrateful world rather than the grateful saved who are the, who are the beneficiaries of this suffering servant's work. Stand again with me. I know you've been standing a lot, but we would like to have a standing when we read the word of God. I'm going to do as I have been the last few weeks. I'm going to start at the beginning of this servant song, and we'll read the first three verses of this song, the first three stanzas of this song, and then we'll stop when we get to our text today, verses 7, 8, and 9. So beginning in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were st astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So we've seen in these verses that we just read in the first three stanzas, the whole song in this fourth servant song, we're seeing how the servant's suffering is being described. 
And Isaiah has taken five verses, clearly in the Hebrew, five different sections. And the first stanza, or the first verse, we learn that the servant shall be high, lifted up, and exalted as a result of his suffering to cleanse many. So in that first stanza, we see both the exaltation and the suffering brought together and melded together for us. In the second stanza, the servant was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and despised and rejected by men. In the third stanza where we spent last time last week, the servant suffered in our place, was crushed for our sins, and bore our iniquity. Clearly seeing the substitutionary atonement of the servant, the Messiah, Jesus, on our behalf in those verses. And today we come to the fifth stanza, or the fifth verse of the song. The servant willingly suffered as a lamb led to slaughter, though he was innocent. The servant willingly suffered as a lamb led to slaughter, though he was innocent. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Now, there's a lot that our English translations sometimes have trouble conveying in ways that we can fully understand it. But I want you to first see two things. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. You see the the external and the internal suffering. He was oppressed from the outside, but also he was afflicted. Inside, he was afflicted. And, And really, what this second phrase means for us when it says he was afflicted, I'm not trying to go all Hebrew grammar on you because I'm no Hebrew grammarian, but here's what I learned that helped me understand even more what this text is saying. The the verb stem for the word afflicted is a stem that has a reflexive idea about it. So really what this verse is saying, that he submitted himself to the affliction. He humbled himself to the affliction. Do you catch what this means? This is, we we take all of our biblical theology and we need to have it in our mind even as we separate it from what we're learning exclusively in Isaiah 53. But this is the God of creation. This is the God who created the world. This is the God that while he hung on the cross sustained every molecule so that the world that's crucifying him held into existence. He had the power to do anything that he chose to do. And yet he submitted himself to this affliction. He humbled himself for this affliction, which has been described some, and it's going to be described again in these coming verses. So when we think about this, when we think in verse 7 that he was oppressed and afflicted, the, the, the way the words are holding together here and the, word, the Hebrew words behind it, this is probably talking about the, the, the idea that when Jesus was oppressed by men, he was, Isaiah is reminding us that he willingly submitted to that. Now, in the gospel accounts, we know that's true. Amen? We see that. We see that all through the gospel accounts that he willingly submitted, but he wasn't submitting to the men who oppressed him. He was submitting to his father, Right? There's where his submission was. So he was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted. And even while that was going on, yet he opened not his mouth. Now we've already seen when Isaiah, when this passage in the first servant song came up, we've already seen this idea alluded to, didn't we? In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 2, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So he opened not his mouth. Now... We just heard one of the passages read from the Gospels where that was the case, where he did not open his mouth. We were reminded about that. But remember, when he stood before Pilate, when he stood before the Pharisees, when he stood before Herod, whenever the the accusations were brought against him, he didn't speak. Now, there were times that he did speak back to them, right? They asked a question, tell us, are you the Christ? Uh, Pilate said, and he said, you say that I am. So he does answer, but when they accuse him, when they accuse him of things, he is silent. He does not answer a word. Now, he knows that those accusations are false, 
And remember, they tried to bring all of these to him and they found no one but would bring false witnesses until they found someone that brought his words about the temple being destroyed and he would raise it up in three days. So those are the only, pe- the only words that could be brought forward to him in trial and they were trying to take his response as blasphemy and he was quiet. He was quiet because the scripture prophesied that that's what he would be when he was charged. And look at what it says in the middle of verse seven. In case we're not sure, we we have a picture, we have an illustration. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. Now, the lamb led to slaughter, if you're an Israelite, your mind is automatically going to the sacrificial system, right? The word for lamb is used over and over and over. Uh, The word for sheep that appears in the second line, that's only used four times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word behind lamb used all over the place in Leviticus and uh, about the sacrificial system. So we are thinking sacrifice if we're an obedient Jew, and if we're an obedient Bible reader, we are thinking sacrifice. But we're not thinking a sacrifice that is forced. We're thinking a sacrifice that is willing. Now look at the difference in the sheep. In the last week when we looked, we were sheep, or like sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now, so that characteristics about sheep are applied to us. But this characteristic about sheep, the willingness to go to slaughter, is applied to Christ. And yet it's not quite the same, is it? Because that sheep doesn't know where the sheep is going. They're being obedient, they're being shuffled in, and they're heading to slaughter. But Jesus at every moment knew what lied ahead for him. At every moment he is obedient to his father, so he is willingly submitting. John Oswald, one of the commentators on Isaiah, says this stanza of the poem takes up the sheep metaphor from the end of the previous stanza and uses it to underline the point being made throughout the entire poem. The contrast between sinful people and innocent servant. When we are compared to sheep, when we are compared to sheep, it is their tendency to get themselves lost that is given prominence. But when the servant is compared to sheep, it is their non-defensive, submissive nature that becomes the basis of comparison. Both he and we may be compared to sheep, but when we are, two different pictures emerge. In us, the negative characteristics are seen, whereas in him, it is the positive one. He shares the same nature with us, but in him, it is transformed. I think that's a wise perception of what's being brought before us here. So he is being oppressed. He's submitting himself to affliction, but yet he does not open his mouth. The New Testament bears that out, that when he was before the trials, he did not open his mouth to defend himself, but he goes as a sheep before its shearers silently, or as a lamb before the slaughter. Now that right there just puzzles us, doesn't it? Ezekiel uses the same kind of expression that he's being oppressed like a lamb being led to slaughter. But Ezekiel's complaining about it the whole time. He's saying this isn't just, this isn't right. And he calls God to come against his enemies because he's being led like a sheep to slaughter and he doesn't deserve what he gets. And isn't that where you and I land all the time? Anytime that there's oppression or something that comes our way, if we can't connect the dots that it's our fault, and even sometimes when we do know it's our fault, We think we don't deserve this, and we protest, and we are calling out for justice on those who are oppressing us. And Jesus, who is the one who has the right to do that, does not. He remains silent. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now this word for oppression is a different word than oppressed that's in verse seven. A different Hebrew word stands behind it. It's only used three times in the Old Testament. It's used in the idea of oppression in Psalm 107. In Proverbs 30, it's used to describe a barren woman, one one who has a restraint put on her according to childbearing. I think that's what this word is telling us. There's a restraint against him. And these two words together, when we look at verse eight, oppression and judgment, judgment is that mishpat, the Hebrew word behind justice. And so I think what we're, what we're seeing here is a nod toward Jesus's unjust trial. 
That's what I think we're seeing in verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. By an unjust judicial ruling, he was taken away. So they had no right. Pilate knew this. Pilate, there were, there were washing of hands, weren't there? They knew that there was no justice in what was being done, but the mob was calling for it. Peace was what was going to be had at all costs. So I think when we're looking at verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It is all the oppression that was against him, all the trial, everything leading up to the trial, his crucifixion, but it was also the opposition through his entire life. This is what we call, in theological terms, the, the, the uh, uh, passive obedience of Jesus Christ, that he is passively allowing the suffering to come his way. Now, I don't want you to walk away thinking that passively means that he was a wimp about it. This was him submitting to the Father's will. He actively went to the cross, but he passively submitted to the suffering that, that he would endure to go there. So by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. By, by a, an unjust judicial judgment, an unjust trial, he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? So some of your versions may have something about his children because the, his generation can be, can be taken like, like his offspring, that he was killed before he would have any offspring. I think the ESV and those who uh, translate it um, like this are, are, are correct when they say, as for his generation, those who were around when Jesus lived and suffered and died. Now, let me tell you that the, the Hebrew in this verse confuses Hebrew scholars, okay? So I, I, feel, I feel okay. I said I feel, didn't I? No, this is an example of where you can say that. I feel with great feeling that it's okay for me to be confused by the, by the Hebrew. If the scholars say, well, it could mean this and it could be this, and they go to the next verse... That doesn't help pastors very much because you don't want me to say, well, it could be this and this and you go to the next verse. So it's difficult. But I, but, but I, think, I think what Isaiah wants us to know is that the truth of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, it led to his death. And no one who was non-believing and even many who were believing expected that. Think of the disciples. I mean, they didn't expect it. Peter's like, Peter's standing against Jesus saying that he's going to go to his death, where Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. So the, this phrase, and as for this, his generation, those people who were alive, it's a surprise. Who even considered that he was going to be cut off from the land of the living Cut off from the land of the living is used uh, many times. I think it's 77 times in the scripture. I have it written in a, in a plethora of notes here. Let me just find. 177 times in the scriptures in the Old Testament, this phrase is used to talk about death, dying, or taking someone's life, contemplating murder. So there's no question, almost every one of those 177 times have that context. So there's no question when we see this phrase, cut off from the land of the living, we're meaning the death of the servant, the death of the Savior. It surprised everyone, and no one in his generation, or very few people, even considered that all of this was going to lead to an unjust death, especially the unjust death of the actual Messiah, the actual suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah. Who even considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? And why was he cut off? We're reminded again at the end of verse 8. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Now some of your versions may have something like, um, to whom the stroke was due or something like that afterward. Again, the Hebrew can be taken in multiple different ways. The Hebrew is, is literally what we see in the Hebrew. For the transgression of my people, stroke to him, or stroke to them. It could be him or them. It depends on whether this preposition is plural or singular. It could be either one. You see how confusing it gets when you dig into this? But when you see the different translations, you wanna say, why are they different? And we can tell why they're different. Some are taking it this way and some are taking it this way. But the idea is the same no matter what. It either is he took the stroke that the, was due to the people, which was true, 
or God made him take the stroke. It was to him the stroke was due because God was the one who decided that that would be. The meaning doesn't change at all. Again, this is substitutionary atonement, isn't it? This is the perfect servant who is without sin taking the blow of death on the behalf of those people that he would save. Stricken for the transgression of my people. So who would have considered they would go to death and let alone consider that that death had a purpose and that was salvation from the transgressions of the people that committed them? It's countercultural in the Old Testament, it's countercultural in the New Testament, and it's countercultural today. That's why the gospel is, is, is regularly called counterculture. The gospel doesn't change, but its application in the culture does. Well, the gospel doesn't change. That's all we need to know. Jesus died for the sins of his people. All who would believe, and it's prophesied by Isaiah at a time where they were not expecting anything like this. It's mind-blowing to them that we were talking about spiritual salvation and especially spiritual salvation for the entire world, not just the Jews. Alec Motier, another commentator on Isaiah that I appreciate, says the human eye, back in chapter four, verse four, saw him at the mercy of hostile and even divine forces. <coughs> Remember, we esteemed him smitten by God. They didn't realize what, what God was doing. The theologically instructed eye saw the hand of the Lord fulfilling the servant's death as a sin-bearing exercise. Now, however, we stand on a very sacred spot indeed within the servant's own consciousness and we see him not caught in a web of events but masterfully deciding, accepting, and submitting to those events. I don't want us to miss this. All the while Jesus is living his life, he's, being, he's meeting opposition throughout his entire life, he, he's unjustly tried, he's crucified on the cross, all the while, not only is he submitting to it, but he is orchestrating it because he is God. All the while he is submitting to that, that oppression that is the will of God. Remember, it was at the hands of sinful men, but it was the will of God. Remember what we learned in Acts? So this is going on and he knows that and he's sustaining them. He's sustaining all the people who are in opposition to him because of his holiness, he could kill them then. He could execute, execute justice on them then. Remember, all authority has already been given to him. It's already, we saw that in Daniel chapter seven and he's in the process of that happening in front of the entire world of God granting that authority because he lives and he dies and he rises again and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So all along, all the people that are crucifying him, God could have taken out at that moment because they were sinful, but Jesus is sustaining them as they killed him. Those are amazing thoughts and they should bring us to worship and they should bring us to obedience. Look at verse 9. And, so we're tying this to those who, can, who, who had never considered that he would die for the transgression of his people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Now, there's a question here, too. Maybe some of your versions say, um, instead of and with a rich man in his death, it's yet with a rich man in his death, or but with a rich man in his death. Remember, we've talked about poetry, Hebrew poetry, a bunch in Isaiah. And we've talked about how the lines um, are in parallelism, parallelism often, and there are different types of parallelism. Sometimes they're, they're, the second line is just re-describing the first. Sometimes it's intensifying it. Sometimes it's the opposite. So that is the question here. Is it synthetic parallelism, which is saying both lines are true in the same way, or is it antithetical parallelism, saying that they are opposites? Or is it an intensity? parallelism. What parallelism? What is it? And the Hebrew can be translated in multiple ways. Here's where I think the key is. Look at your text and look at how it's, it's given to us. They made his grave with the wicked, generality, and with a rich man in his death. 
Now, there are some who would say this idea with a rich man, the rich men, a lot of the times in scripture, rich people, because of the, their love of money, are brought as wicked people, right? Now, we know that, that wealth is not wicked in and of itself. It's the love of that money, the love of wealth that gets us into trouble, the idolatry there. But oftentimes, the, the rich are brought as being those people who are, are self-centered and all they care about is their belly, and they're the, they're the people who, who don't exercise justice for other people. So some would say that the, both of these are negative terms because he was being considered as, as someone... Uh, who was a criminal, being uh, considered as someone who is wicked, and that's why he was put to death. But I think it's better to look at the wicked in general and a rich man in his death. I think this is one of those passages that no one understands until it happens, and we read it about it in the Gospels, and Robert read it to us this morning. There were criminals who were the wicked, plural, hanging on crosses next to him, and there was one rich man, singular, who came in, Joseph of Arimathea, who came in and asked for the body and buried him with the rich. That's where his tomb would have been. It's with the people who had that kind of money. So this is one who would, I'm sorry? And he was a just man. It says he was rich, it says he was righteous, it says he was well respected, and it says he was just. All of those together. So what we have here is a prophecy that's not understood at all until it happens. One writer, Tremper Longman, an Old Testament scholar, uh, wrote a book, How to Read the Proverbs, and he used the movie The Sixth Sense to show how this works for us many times as we look at the Old Testament and we looked at it through the eyes of the new. I told you before, I sat under a, a professor, Don Whitney, in seminary, who he, he drew pictures all the time for his notes in class, and he would draw a Bible with OT on it, and then a set of glasses, and a Bible with New Testament, or something like that, to remind us that we were always looking at the Old Testament through the eyes of the new to fully understand it. We weren't supposed to take the Old Testament without the, uh, and, and never look at it on its own, its own context and all of that, but its full understanding came through the new. Tremper Longman used the, the idea of the movie of The Sixth Sense, where the main character is a psychologist who's counseling a young boy who says that he is seeing dead people. And he counsels him, think, telling, thinking that it's all uh, hallucinations that, that this boy is having. But he's also realizing at the same time in his life that his... his um, his relationship with his wife is suffering. There's a distance, and that distance started happening when he was almost killed by an intruder in their home. And if you're watching the movie, you watch along, and you're seeing this, and then all of a sudden, at one point in the movie, you realize it's revealed to you in the movie that he actually is dead. He died when the intruder came into his home. So the separation that he is feeling is real separation, it's spiritual because he's no longer there and there's a spiritual disconnect and he doesn't even know he's dead. So the boy who talks to dead people is talking to a dead person. And he says, so now we go to the back of that movie and we look back, you can't look at the beginning of the movie the same way. You look at the movie again and you see all these signs that this is true, that you didn't see, unless you're very perceptive. Not many people were perceptive enough to see this, but you watch it again and you think, oh, I missed all of that. Watching the events of the past through the present events changed everything as a movie watcher. So he uses that as an example to say, this is what happens a lot of times for us in the Old Testament. We don't see things clearly, and the people that heard this in Isaiah's time weren't sure exactly what was going on. But when we get to the Gospels and we find out that he was crucified with criminals and a rich man buried him with the rich people, it's glorious, is it not? It's prophecy given and prophecy fulfilled and we see the sovereign hand of God in the, mix, in the midst of it. And what we see throughout this whole passage is an even grander example of that. Not just rich men and, and criminals or, or wicked men or the wicked and the rich, not just that, but we're also seeing this juxtaposition of justice and mercy. Have you sensed that all the way through? We've been waiting here to bring it because this is where it's clearest. The just for the unjust. Look at the rest of verse nine. Although... So it's recognizing that there will be a grave, that this, this servant will die, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Mouth is, a, is just a term to talk about his whole being. So there's nothing he did externally. There's nothing he did internally that deserved that death. So it makes us twitch, doesn't it? That the one who had no sin, who knew no sin, becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It makes us twitch a bit. Because first of all, sometimes we're tempted to think we deserve it, aren't we? Now I know you're going to say, I never think I deserve it. Well, don't we? Aren't there just times that we spurn the grace of God and do what we want and act like we're still wandering sheep going off on our own way instead of following what Christ would say? Because we just don't want to do that and we're presuming upon grace. But other times it makes us twitch because we know we don't deserve it. And we want to protest and say, no, that is not what Jesus deserved. It shouldn't have happened like that because we're thinking too highly of ourselves as well. Look what it says in verse 9. Look at the end of the second phrase. And with a rich man in his death. That's plural in the Hebrew. I find that fascinating. It doesn't happen in other places in Hebrew. Maybe one other place. It's plural. And it's drawing our attention to the fact that maybe a plural of majesty, as some call it, uh, 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 to get us to understand this was not a normal death. This was the death of deaths. This was the death that stands over and against every other death. One person wrote, how do we measure the size of a fire? By the number of firefighters and fire engines sent to fight against it. How do we measure the seriousness of a medical condition? By the amount of risk the doctors take in prescribing dangerous antibiotics or surgical procedures. How do we measure the gravity of sin and the incomparable vastness of God's love for us? by looking at the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus, the Son of God who became like a common criminal for our sake and in our place. Now this idea is picked up multiple times in the New Testament. I want us to look at two. I just want to look at two because you're saying, well, okay, I understand this. I see how it fits in Isaiah 53. I see how we've moved from the, the generation, his generation's perception into what God has actually done. I see that he has done this voluntarily. He's done it willingly, even though he didn't have to technically. I see that he was oppressed and judged in a false trial. I, I see that he was cut off from the land of the living. He actually died, and his death was for the transgressions of my people. I don't know if that's Yahweh sticking in here or I, it's probably Isaiah speaking for him with his people is what it seems like it, it, it is, is Isaiah saying, this is my people he's dying for. And we know that that is anyone who repents of their sins and believes in Christ, right? That's the full biblical understanding of who, for whom Christ died. Those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And I know, I understand that he had done no, there was no violence in him. And the New Testament will tell us in a moment that there was no sin in him and there was no deceit in his mouth. I understand all that. But outside of marveling at it, what does it do for me? How, how am I supposed to apply this? Now, as we turn to these two passages, I don't want you to turn there and say, okay, now we're getting to the meat of it. And make yourself a list that you can start checking boxes and be right back to thinking you deserve God's grace because you checked all the boxes. I don't want you to do that. I want you to remember this morning that if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. If you are in Christ, you now have the ability to hear God's word and do that word, obey it, because it's what your heart desires and because you have the power of God in you, the Holy Spirit, Christ himself. And that when we're called to do, that's what we're drawn to. Uh, we used to be like, like moths or, or, or fireflies to the light outside. We used to be drawn to sin, but now we're, gone, now, now we're drawn to Christ. Now we're drawn to everything that he puts in front of us. So this is a loving outworking of his work in us. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, 
Now, therefore, it's just tying 12 to 11. Remember what's in 11. All of those Old Testament saints who lived by faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the races set before us. Now, let's just stop right there. Automatically, the first thing is taking care of our sin, Right? You had all these people live in, past, in, past, in, in a past who are living by faith in a Christ they haven't seen. They're looking forward to him. And the first thing that said is, crucify your sin. Isn't that great? Say yes. It is. Even though we want to say, well, let's go worship. Let's sing praises. But the first thing we're supposed to do is deal with our sin. Let's read the verse again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race is presumed and it's set before us. The course is already marked and our participation in it is presumed because we are people who follow Christ. Continue, verse two. How do we do this? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured the cross and despising the shame. So this is right what we've learned in Isaiah. And we're learning that that's how we crucify sin. That's how we run the race. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And the first thing we're told about him is that he endured suffering and he endured shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's the new covenant coming in for us, right? All the prophecy has happened. He has lived and died. He's resurrected, and now he's exalted. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the Jesus we keep our eyes on. And you see it has its foundation in his suffering. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that... You may not grow weary or faint-hearted. <laughs> the implication is this race that sets before us, it, it could make us weary. It could make us faint-hearted. So what are we to do? We are consider Christ, who endured his race, who endured the race set before him for the joy set before him. He endured that cross for the joy set before him. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, right there, we're sitting back. We want to close our Bible, right? We're done. Just like, no, I haven't. Did Jesus? Did Jesus resist sin to the point of shedding blood? Yes, he did. And then he shed blood on our behalf. He was the crucified lamb who shed blood on our behalf. And the writer of Hebrews says that this is empowering to us. What's empowering is considering the way he endured suffering, considered the way he endured the oppression of men. That fuels us to do what? Endure suffering. Endure the oppression of men. Remember, the cross is where justice and mercy kiss. It's where justice and mercy meet. God is totally just, totally righteous, amen? He is also merciful. This is why we say all the time, God does not, nor can he wink at sin. He has got to deal with sin according to his justice, and he's dealt with you according to his justice and his mercy. The just one justifying sinners in such a way that keeps him just and us righteous. And that fuels us to obedience. It's not just the contemplating of it. It's contemplating on how he endured that, but it's also contemplating what he purchased as he endured. And he purchased our salvation so that we can fight sin, lay it all aside. Now you notice I'm not even picking on individual sins because what does he tell us in verse one? The author of Hebrews, lay aside every weight and every sin which clings closed. So whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're dealing with, the first thing to do is humble yourself and realize that this is suffering. Even in your sin, it is suffering. Maybe you're suffering at the hand of someone else. You had nothing to do with it. God is using you 
to sanctify somebody else. God is using you to glorify himself through the way you endure. And many times, what do we do? What do we do? We want to stand against that. We want to call it out. We want to drag in our witnesses and say, that's where this person is wrong. Now, clearly there is a time for that. Clearly in the scriptures, there is a time to address people concerning their sin. And if there's unrepentance, to deal with it according to the scriptures. But Jesus suffered unjustly. So when we are sinned against unjustly, that is the way we respond, like him. Now, we could go on in these verses that follow this section on discipline, <clears throat> but I want you to just remember, when you are suffering from your own sin and you feel the consequences, that's the discipline of your loving father, right? It's your loving father, because if he didn't discipline you, it would be evidence that you didn't know him. Because you'd just be acting according to who you are, and he, he's not concerned about you. But he sent his son to die for you. So he is sanctifying you even in the midst of your sin, because even that is working together for good to glorify him. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Or 1 Peter, I'm sorry. This is in a section on submission to authority, as many of your Bibles would have that heading, but I want you to look at verse 18. We'll see the context. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So servants, remember slavery was there, and we apply this to anyone that's, that we're, uh, not only we, that we might be enslaved to, but that we're under their authority. You may be under the authority of someone who is just or someone who is unjust. Your response is the same. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Just mark that in your Bible. Sorrows, enduring sorrows while suffering, how? Unjustly. For what credit is it when, if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So enduring suffering that is unjust is gracious in the sight of God. Remember what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. There's verse 9 of Isaiah 53, and see how it clarifies for us the violence is sin. When he was reviled, verse 23, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is applying Isaiah 53 to us, isn't he? All the language of Isaiah 53 that comes in there from verse 9, from verse 7, from verse 4, from verse 11, from verse 5, from verse 6, he is doing a running application commentary for us. So he is reminding us that since Christ suffered, we'll suffer. And if we're not suffering, we're probably not walking like Christ. We're probably not taking every opportunity we have to live godly, speak godly, preach the gospel. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. Now, this is Jonathan Edwards, so you need to probably shut your eyes and hold on tight, right? Jonathan Edwards can be hard to listen to, but he is rich in his theological insights. Such diverse excellencies are expressed in Christ toward men that otherwise would have seemed impossible to be exercised toward the same object, that is men. As particularly these three, justice, mercy, and truth, 
The same that are mentioned in Psalm 85.10, and he quotes it, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The strict justice of God and even his revenging justice and that against the sins of men never was so gloriously manifested as in Christ. He manifested an infinite regard to the attribute of God's justice in that when he had a mind to save sinners, he was willing to undergo such extreme sufferings rather that their salvation should be to the injury of the honor of that attribute. You hear what he's saying? Rather than not doing what God commanded him to, which would brought injury to the justice of God. His work on the cross was the, extreme, was the extreme manifestation of the justice of God. And as he is the judge of the world, he doth himself exercise strict judgment. He will not clear the guilty, nor at all acquit the wicked in judgment. And yet, how wonderfully is infinite mercy towards sinners displayed in him. And what glorious and ineffable grace and love have been and are exercised by him towards sinful men. Though he be the just judge of a sinful world, yet he is also the savior of the world. Though he be a consuming fire to sin, yet he is the light and life of sinners. Justice and mercy meeting in Christ on the cross. Turn to Romans chapter 3. I was just going to read it, but I think we need to look at it. They're very familiar verses to you. Let's start in verse 21. Well, let's, let's read 19. Since we have a but now in verse 21, let's read verse 19 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the climax of these first three verses, first three chapters where, where Paul is showing that both Jew and Gentile are condemned outside of Christ. And verse 24, not only have they sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the justification is by his grace. That legal standing before God is by his grace. How does that come? Verse 25, whom God put forward, that's the language from Isaiah 53 and 4, 6, and 11. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So God put the servant, the Messiah, Jesus, as a propitiation, an offering that would turn the wrath of God away from us and have him cause, cause us to look on us with, with favor. He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now you see the tension here, right? There's sin everywhere. All have sin fallen short. He's passed over the former sins, but we're seeing mercy intertwined here. This is God's mercy to us to be justified by faith because of this propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus. Why does this happen? Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both the just one and the justifier of the, of the one who has faith in Jesus. All the way through the scriptures we're shown this tension. We feel it in Isaiah 53. The New Testament reveals it to us so clearly. And all of that causes us to be those who because of our new desires, those who are in Christ because of our new desires, we desire now to follow Christ. We desire to, to, to present our members to God for righteousness instead of sin for unrighteousness. We are the ones who count ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. And if that is us, then the fuel for us crucifying that sin and obeying God is to remember what it cost Christ in order for us to have the salvation that allows us to live in righteousness. 
Because we are receiving the righteousness of God in Christ because he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. All of this flows from the idea that is unbearable for many men and women to handle. That God would send his son as a sacrifice. Now let me just speak to two groups of people really quickly. If you were one of those people who have been turned away in your spirit by a God who would sacrifice his son, that that's been anathema to you. It's caused you to sit in judgment of God. That you placed God in the dock and judged his motives and his work as being unsatisfactory to you. Let me call you today to turn away from those thinkings. Let me call you today to turn away from your judgment of God before he judges you. Because he is, he is not judging you right now because he is long-suffering. And his long-suffering is meant... Just a chapter earlier in Romans, we hear this. His suffering, his long suffering is meant to draw you into repentance. It's to give you time to repent of those thoughts of sitting in judgment over God because there is a day coming where he sits over judgment finally over you. It's not that he is not judged now, it's that he is showing his mercy to you. But there will come a day where justice and mercy will meet and mercy will not be for you because mercy is only in the cross. You will just meet the hot justice of God who is a consuming fire. Today is the day for you to turn from your sin and toward Christ, toward the one who lived and suffered and died, and it was the one who obeyed God, who set him forth for that purpose, set him forth as a propitiation, as the offering for, for your sin. It is today that you need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ so that justice and mercy meet for you at the cross. So that your life now is lived in Christ Jesus and your eternal salvation is secure. Today is the day that you must turn. Not should, not maybe consider it, but you must. But if you're here and you're already in Christ, this should cause two things to happen for you. It should cause you to refocus your understanding of your own sin so that you can crucify it through the power of the cross, where the forgiveness of that sin was purchased. Amen. This is why Luke spends an hour every week teaching us about how to apply the Bible to our life. Because for believers, it's powerful. We sang that the name of Jesus is powerful, and that's true. But the word of God is powerful, sharp, cutting things apart like nothing else does. And so for us, when we hear the word of God, the Holy Spirit of God brings those things that God wants us to crucify, to lay aside that are hindrance to us, and he reminds us of it, and he reminds us of it because he's gracious to us. The sin does not, does not separate us from God. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that there's nothing that separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? And that includes your sin if justice and mercy have met at the cross for you. So this is inspiring and motivational for us, but it's also the fuel. You see it as the fuel, right? This is not your works in your own power and your own might. This is the gospel working in you to crucify your sin and to focus on Jesus. It's not spending all day, Luke used an example, I don't remember what it was, but an example this morning about somebody focusing on their sin. All day they're focusing on the sin because they're not loving Christ, Christ is the one who died for us. It's Christ who loved us enough to purchase us. And so it, it, not only, it not only is inspirational and motivational, but it's fuel for us. And we just read two passages, and we could have read more, that it was his suffering that is the beginning of that motivation. Because we're suffering when we sin, but we suffer often at the hands of others and their sin. And we're to endure that for the sake of the glory of God. There was a Franciscan university... You're not going to hear me quote Catholics very much. But there was a Franciscan university in Ohio who was advertising their theological programs on Facebook. This is 2018 or 19. And they were, as they were advertising, and one of the images in the Facebook ad was of, a, was of Christ being crucified. Facebook rejected it because it did not meet their, their appropriate standards. They called it shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. 
Facebook was right, weren't they? It is shocking. It is sensational. It was excessively violent from human standpoints. But it was not excessively violent from God's standpoint because it was love. Driven by love and justice, but driven by love for God's people so that he would redeem a people for himself. There are many, whether they know it or not, who are waiting for someone to come and share the story about the God who hung on a cross. This is the place that justice and mercy meet. If this is the first time you've heard this, repent today. If you're a believer here today, you should be going out in worship. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, says Hebrews 12, 28. And thus, thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. We are grateful, Father, for your mercy to us. We're so grateful for this fourth servant song that brings so, into such clear focus the work of our Savior, Jesus, the the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was crucified, the lamb who shows in, in Revelation as one as if he had been crucif uh, the crucified lamb, the lamb who shed his blood willingly, submitted to the oppression of men because of the will of God, because it was his will to crush him so he might redeem a people for himself. And we, Father, are overwhelmed by that, but grateful. And we pray that you would allow us to be strengthened to fight sin and strengthened to worship you in, the spite of, in spite of everything going on in the world, that we are still free to worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we are not overcome by all of this, that we pray without ceasing, and that we stand for justice because Christ died to satisfy a just God. So we ask you, Father, to do all of this in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.